Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is musical theater composer, arranger, and musical director David O. First of all, Gen Z is changing our listening habits. Yeah, they're really influential. That's basically anyone under the age of 25, born between 1998 and 2012. This is a very interesting generation. They're generally more informed. They value cultures other than their own, and they're a lot more socially aware than any of the generations before them. That being said, they do have certain traits of how they listen. For instance, they listen to a lot more sad music and a lot more music about loneliness. And this translates even to mainstream and even top 40 where there's more sad music than ever before. They also love to listen to music from all over the world, not just their home countries. K-pop is a really good example where who knows if that would have broken out to the level it has been without Generation Z. They discover a lot more music from online communities. This sort of harkens back to the past, where word of mouth is very powerful. This is especially on social media. They prefer playlists over albums. Yeah, Gen Z doesn't play an entire album. And this has forced artists to actually make more EPs, because they know if they make a 10-song album, chances are there's only going to be four or five that are going to be listened to. So when it comes down to it, Gen Z is influencing everything about music right now, but it may be transparent to you. They're influencing artists and how artists approach their music. They're influencing discovery algorithms and how you find music. As a result, they're probably influencing what you listen to as well. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. You can also sign up for my free vocal mixing techniques mini course at bobbyosinskicourses.com and download free ebooks and PDF downloads on mixing, production, mastering, and social media at bobbyosinski.com forward slash free hyphen resources. <laughs> Now, in a Facebook workshop that I've been doing, a topic came up that kind of jogged my mind on something, and that's the five mix elements. This is something I learned very early on when I first moved to Los Angeles. An engineer called David Holman, who at the time was responsible for all of Olivia Newton-John's hits when she was at her biggest, he took me aside one day and he gave me some advice. There's actually six mix elements. There's a foundation, which is bass and drums, or it could be anything that's playing those same figures. Could be rhythm guitar, could be a keyboard. Then there's something that adds motion, and this is usually double time of the foundation. This could be a keyboard, it could be a rhythm guitar, it could be a tambourine or some sort of percussion. Sometimes in a three or four piece band, it could be the hi-hat, as long as it adds motion to the song. The next element is the pad. Pad is a long sustaining note. Traditionally, this was done by an organ, for instance. Strings is another way to do it, but synthesizers now sort of take up that role today. Nonetheless, it's very powerful. Many times you don't hear this particular element because it just blends in with the track. The next is the lead element. That would be a lead vocal, or it could be a lead instrument. Then counterpoint. Frequently, 
there's something that's playing a line that's against the lead vocal or against the foundation element. And then finally, there's a fills element. And this is a vocal, or it could be an instrument that's answering the lead instrument or filling in the holes around the phrases of the lead. Now, here's the trick. There can't be any more than five elements playing at the same time. Because if there's more than that, our ears get fatigued, and we kind of move on to the next song. So what we try to do is keep those elements to five at the most, and usually it's far less than that. Usually it's more like three or four that's going on, in some cases even two. But that's been a key for many mixers, whether they know it or not, for years and years. Try to keep the number of elements down to five or less, and you find that your mix is a whole lot less confusing. Now, a mix element is not a track. As a matter of fact, you can have lots of tracks playing at the same time, and there'll only be one mix element. Background vocals, for instance. You might have 20 background vocals, but they're all singing the same thing. So they're one element. Or you could have several guitars, and they're all either doubled or tripled, playing the same thing. Maybe they're in octaves. Maybe they're playing in harmony. Doesn't matter. They're all one element. Some arrangers know this, and of course they arrange very well to this particular principle. But now you know it too. My guest this week is David O., whose work as a composer is enhanced by his unique skills as a multifaceted music theater artist, pianist, conductor, arranger, vocal coach, and sometimes actor. He's received numerous awards and accolades over the years for his work, including Ovation Awards, L.A. Weekly and L.A. Drama Critics Circle Awards, Backstage West Garland Awards, and was the recipient of the L.A. Drama Critics Circle Joel Hirschhorn Award for Excellence in Musical Theater. David's musical compositions span a broad range of styles and genres and have been featured in the theater, in concert halls, and in film and television. He's also committed to the education of young people, continuing the traditions of music and music theater for the next generations. In addition to his work in the classroom, the rehearsal room, and on stage, David is a well-respected vocal and performance coach, specializing in working with actor-singers of all ages and skill levels on musical theater performance, including audition preparation, vocal technique, and unlocking the emotional truth of songs in order to create the cathartic musical theater experience. During the interview, we talked about how being an actor helps in theater music direction, working as a musician on a cruise ship, whether or not the character knows if they're singing or not, and much more. I spoke with David via Zoom from his office in Connecticut. Tell me how you get into music. I was born into it. Um, my parents were two of a five-person uh, singing-slash-songwriting group in Central California in the mid-70s. Uh, that w played primarily at churches and uh, community centers uh, in the area, and they sang madrigals and original songs. Um, it was a very early 70s thing, um, and they were great. And it gave me the sensibility that music was something that you just did. That it was that 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 it was something that came from your heart. That it was something that you gave to your friends and your community uh, and to the world. And there was definitely a spiritual aspect to it. 
Um, uh, but it wasn't entirely religious. Um, it was it was more sort of universalist altruistic. Um, and that sense of what music is uh, stays with me today, uh, and probably even more so today, especially today when we're all in isolation and figuring out what it is that we do and why we do it. And sort of so many people I'm talking to are rethinking uh, what their whole lives and careers and identity as artists are. But what I then, um, through school, I played musical instruments, I played trombone and tuba, I played piano, uh, never really thought of that as a career, never really thought of that as what my job was going to be. I caught the theater bug, I caught the acting bug, and then uh, was trained as an actor. Uh, after getting out of school, I would get all sorts of phone calls saying, hey, will you come be in our play? We have a great role for a piano player. Uh, and that, over time, evolved into a career as a musical director, composer, arranger in the musical theater. Um, but like I said, I, I, I didn't grow up playing piano thinking that that would be a career goal. It was more a language that I spoke and the way I most naturally interacted with the world. Did that mean that at some point you had to become more schooled in your playing? Yes, I did. Um, and I took that upon myself become more schooled in my playing. Um, I still have never, other than a couple of piano, sitting down at the piano lessons when I was five with my mother, um, who was a great piano teacher, but I, I wasn't into the scales when I was five. I wasn't into doing that. I was into sitting down and figuring out what I liked to hear and how to make those sounds come out of the instrument in front of me. Um, and that's still my primary impetus for creating. Yeah, along the way, I definitely took it upon myself to give myself projects of increasing technical needs uh, to work up my chops to, to get better and better. You mentioned before about growing up in a musical family. Where was that again? Did you grow up? I grew up in Salinas, California, on the central coast of California, just inland from Monterey, um, best known uh, locally as uh, sometimes they call it the salad bowl of the world. Uh, every little town had its own identity based on which vegetable was most prevalent in that town. Um, and, but, it, but it also was not a culturally backwards place as a lot of farmland is sort of stereotypically known to be. Um, Salinas was the home, at least the artistic home of Steinbeck, of Soroyan. Mm -hmm. of, of great literary figures. Um, and that was definitely instilled on the students growing up there. Um, we were also close enough to the San Francisco Bay Area um, that we were able to enjoy a lot of, you know, finer American culture. The reason why I bring it up is it sounds so familiar to me in that I spent some time in Louisiana around Baton Rouge for a while. And what always got me was the musicianship was so high, but mostly because everyone played from their heart because they were used to doing that. They grew up where everyone played for the family. And it didn't matter to those musicians there whether they were playing for three people in their living room or three million people. It was all the same to them. 
Yeah. And, and what you're describing is very similar in that when you're growing up in an environment where it just happens, kind of don't distinguish anymore between, you know, what you're doing in, in terms of, it's coming more from the heart always because it's the way you grew up. That's, that's really similar to how I grew up thinking about it and how I think about it now. Um, and and there's, there's an aspect of that, you know, culturally in America, there's an aspect of that that's traditionally connected with church music. And that's something that has really changed in recent years because the identity of churches, especially Christian churches in America, has really, has really changed. And people like me aren't, aren't as active in churches as we were. Um, I'm, I certainly, I, I consider myself, I guess, kind of post-religious, uh, you know, uh, agnostic about any one spiritual tradition, but I do still very much love the artistic traditions uh, and, and, and have a, a hunger and a thirst for that. And uh, especially today where we're all separated in our own rooms, a thirst for trying to find a way to recreate that sense of musical community. Yeah, I know what you mean. Don mentioned that you did a stint on cruise ships. I did. In the late 90s, uh, in fact, that was a, a, a moment for me in my career as an artist um, that really solidified my identity as a musical director. Up until that point, as I said, it was something I grew up with. I got really involved in theater as an actor uh, and really identified as an actor for a while and, and, and pursued a career in, in that regard. I had a temp day job working in the corporate office at Princess Cruises, which started out as a, as a temp secretarial job. And then after a couple of years of working with them, I, I found myself in the position where I was the guy who was hiring the musicians to go out on the ships. So... I was auditioning people. A lot of it was, was you know, video and audio recording auditions. Uh, or honestly, when push came to shove, uh, a recommendation from a friend, a phone call saying, you got a trombone, a tux, and a passport? Great, you're getting on a flight tomorrow. <laughs> it, it, was, it was booking musicians by hook or by crook. My wife and I, after a couple of years of, of me doing this job, my wife and I said, you know, it'd be great. We should go out there ourselves for a while. And uh, the company was uh, generous enough to, to hire us together. So we were able to go out there and, and work on ships together. We, we worked, she was the uh, uh, senior assistant to the cruise director. Uh, and I was the bandmaster on the ship, the musical director. Uh, what that meant was I, I led the band in the big production shows, yeah. but also managed the team of, of instrumentalists on the ship. Uh, which was, you know, quite an experience for a couple of years. It's, it's, it's a great experience for people who uh, uh, want to build their chops, uh, for people who want to uh, really hone their skills and, and travel. Uh, and if you can manage not to blow all your pay having fun, then it's a great way to save up some money as well. Um, so we did that for about two years. We had a great time. Um, but we don't really need to go back. <laughs> The reason why I bring it up is I like to cruise. I've been on 35, I think. Wow. Mostly Royal Caribbean, but I've done a few princess. But what I've always found interesting is I like to look at the musicians when they play because I can tell, as, as you know, who just came on and, and who's ready to leave. <laughs> you know, Who's at the end of that two-year stint because their yeah. eyes are, are far away. You know, <laughs> They're not really there. 
So I find it really interesting. But frankly, I kind of went through the same thing when I was growing up. I was playing in clubs and I was playing, you know, four, five, six, seven nights a week. And you go through four sets a night and it's the same thing after a while. It's like, oh, do I have to do this again? (laughs) So I could see how two years would kind of be enough. Actually, on the ships that I was on, there was a there was a mix of material that we played. Uh, we played, you know, the the pre written uh, song and dance musical review production shows that were songs that were performed to click track that were the same every dang night. And we would do, you know, uh, uh, when we did the show, we would do it twice a night, and we would do the same show every week. So we had the same, I don't know three or four production shows that we played hundreds and hundreds of times. But then on the off nights between the production shows, we would have guest entertainers come in Mm -hmm. and there would be, you know, a cabaret singer or a magician or a ventriloquist or a banjo player or a juggler. And, and those shows, some of them had more involvement from the band. Some of them had less involvement, but they would come in with their books of charts Um, in whatever state of repair or disrepair the charts were in uh and sometimes we'd have a half an hour rehearsal for a 45 minute show and that was it so it was really uh um a trial by fire in terms of being as performance ready as possible as quickly as possible yeah yeah no i've had the same thing as a matter of fact backing up various bands that would come in at the jersey shore my band had a residence there and they'd bring in the coasters and the drifters and the Shangri-Las and whatever, and they'd show up with the charts, and there'd be no rehearsal. It's like, okay, let's go for it. You know, yeah. so it, it's the same thing. And, and you know, the sweat goes down, but it's like exhilarating at the same time. It's like, wow, we're gonna we're gonna do this. <laughs> you know, so yeah, 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 I I know where you're coming from. Okay, so after the cruise ship, then you, you felt you got your musical director chops together. So then, what happened? So, um, uh, coming back, uh, ashore, uh, we settled in Los Angeles, uh, which has been the, the, our, our home for almost our entire lives since then. We recently moved, uh, to the East coast, but, uh, after ships, we, we came back to LA. Um, and I, uh, started working more and more as a MD in the musical theater, primarily in LA's 99 seat, uh, theater scene. Um, which was which was thriving uh, and and thrived for many years, um, uh, and there was a lot of really exciting and innovative new work being done. Um, people are, are creating new pieces of of musical theater that were that ranged from uh, more traditional styles to pretty outrageous, wildly experimental work, um, and I enjoyed all of that. Uh, in particular, I had a kind of a specialty and it's, and still do, uh, as, as a, as a rock and roll theater guy, I got a little known for a while, uh, in LA as the, as the person to call if you were doing a rock theater piece, um, uh, which I loved. Uh, and one of the things I loved about it is that there's an inherently, uh, improvisational nature to that kind of work. Um, that you, as opposed to a lot of other musical theater, which is very rigidly structured, um, the rock theater uh, tends to allow for more improvisation on the players. Um, the charts tend to be more uh, chords and slashes with uh, uh, some indications of what the rhythm is supposed to be and, and, and say, go for it, do your thing, you know what to do. Uh, that's the kind of playing I love the most. 
Um, I also worked um, in some of the larger institutions, such as Center Theater Group uh, uh, downtown with the Amundsen Theater and the Mark Taper Forum, uh, both in, also in uh, creating new work, um, but also in particular uh, working on creating work for kids. Uh, I created uh, some new musicals uh, for a youth audience. Uh, I also worked with the LA Master Chorale, the LA's you know, preeminent choral organization, uh, on creating their educational program, uh, which, uh, uh, as of the time of the recent shutdown, was was still going strong uh, in both in in fifth grade classrooms and in high schools, working with kids on both short form and longer form uh, songwriting and choral composing, um, and so that all was a patchwork of, of, of freelance work that uh, kept me going in, in Los Angeles for, for many years. But then you decided to move back east. I did, uh, just this last year, and I picked a hell of a time to do it. Yeah. Uh, I came out because a couple of reasons. A couple of specific projects, which are on their way to Broadway productions, and I do believe they're still on their way to Broadway productions, even though the timing is now a little bit up in the air. A couple of specific pieces for which I had to be here. I had to be a local here to be, really be uh, uh, connected with the with the pieces. And just also, I had reached the point where I was my my career was progressing beyond the work that I was primarily doing, which were the small theaters in LA. At the same time, I don't want to get into the all the geeky details of the of the actors contracts, but there there has been a big change in the LA theater scene in terms of the number of productions that have been that are being done and the scale of those productions. So at the same time as I'm naturally progressing to larger work, the the work in the most of the theaters in LA is actually unfortunately on a little bit of a decline. So it it became really clear uh, that I needed to come out to greener pastures, or at least more economically viable pastures. Given the fact that you were an actor, or maybe you still are, did you still act? I haven't really acted in years, no. Okay, but nonetheless, you still have those chops. How does that help you in musical theater? It makes me different from other musical directors in so much as my focus is always on story. My focus is always on story, and in particular, my focus is always on the story as driven by the character. Um, my work with actors in the musical theater uh, is always based equally on the technical needs of the music as written by the composer and the need for everything the actor does to be driven by what the character is doing at that moment in the story. Uh, my training as an actor is very, uh, uh, well, action-driven. Um, every so every word, every sound, every movement, and in the case of musical theater, every note uh, has to be generated from what the actor is, what the character is going through, and what the character is trying to express, and what the character needs, what the character is doing to engage in the world. It's funny. I have I've had debates with other musical directors about this, whether or not this is so esoteric, but so forgive me for going there whether or not a character knows that they are singing in the musical theater. 
and I, 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 I stand firmly on the side of, and I'm, and I'm, I may be alone in the community of musical directors on this. I stand firmly on the side of the character absolutely knows they're singing. When have you ever sung when you didn't know you were singing? Yeah. Um, it, yes, it creates a, a sort of an absurd reality in the theater, um, but that's okay. There's plenty of absurdist theater out there. Um, and I just think musical theater is the most economically successful form of absurdist theater. That is esoteric, but you know, <laughs> but I never thought of it. You're right. Does a character know? <laughs> I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm of the, I'm of the mindset when I work with actors that the character chooses to sing. The character the character chooses to sing these notes to the other characters in the room, and for me that makes the performance all the more powerful and compelling. And it really connects the music to the action, as opposed to it being a story that's happening, and there happens to be music. Yeah. For me, this, the music it is has to be an inherently integral part of the story as driven by the character. So how does that change your approach then as an MD? Uh, it means that I have to always be careful not to step on the director's toes. <laughs> oh, okay. But you, you do anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm I'm always engaging with the actors, in a in a way where I'm working with them on what's happening with the character in the moment. Every musical phrase is worked on not only from a technical level of what I have to do with my voice at this moment to hit this particular note, to jump this particular interval, to hear this particular harmony. That all is tied to what the actor is doing at that moment. As a character. You compose as well, right? Yeah. What would be your approach when you're composing something in terms of how you're interacting with everybody else involved? I'm going to try to answer this in a way that applies not only to musical theater, but also to the concert work that I've done. Um, uh, most of which is, is based in choral music, you know, concert composing and arranging. I'm always trying to keep in mind not only the sort of ideal version of what I think it should sound like in my mind, but also the reality of what it's likely to sound like with real people in the room so that the work is as closely attuned as possible to what the voices are doing, what the instruments are doing, what the performers are are physically having to do in the room. Um, that's that's me. Uh, I think a lot of composers would fall on the other side, where they're more interested in the the ideal version of it, yeah. uh, and then <laughs> whatever the performers have to deal with, that's their problem. Um, but 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 I, I, I'm much more interested in there being a, a, a kind of a vertical collaboration. Um, not that the composer is above the performers. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. I think it's more of a horizontal collaboration, I guess, between between equals yeah. um, who are who are working together to create a new piece of music. And I think that also leads to a much more visceral experience with the audience. One of the things I always found interesting was the orchestration for musical theater in that it's a different level because you're always trying to stay out of the way of the actors, of what yeah. they're singing, 
but yet it still has to be powerful and still has to set the mood. That's not easy. I mean, you know, if you think about film composition, it's one thing. But if you think about musical theater, it's completely different how you approach it. It is. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a very different thing. Um, and, you know, a lot of times in the musical theater, the orchestrator, not always, but more and more, the orchestrator is a different person from the composer. The, uh, uh, the composer is, is, is more of a songwriter uh, and, and who, who may or may not have a background orchestrating, um, who, frankly, in some cases, may or may not have a background uh, reading and writing music. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've worked on, especially with my work in, in more rock and roll based musical theater. Um, I've worked with, uh, theaters, songwriters who, who don't read and write, read and write at all. And it becomes the, the music director slash arranger slash orchestrator, however you define those titles, which is different in every production, uh, becomes those people's jobs to figure out what that means on the page in terms of the instructions to the singers and the players. But in terms of orchestrating the music itself, yeah. The words are tend to be much more of a priority in musical theater than in almost any other form of music. The lyrics uh, really become the 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 primary mode of expression, and the music is often in support of that, which is different from almost anything that you can think of, including opera. Even opera, uh, it's much. In fact, that's to a lot of people they say that's the distinction between opera and musical theater is that an opera the music wins in musical theater, the lyrics. win. Mm, Yeah. Never thought of it that way, but you're right. You mentioned about doing a fundraising video for the actors fund. Um, This is uh, something that uh, at the time we're recording this, I can't talk about this today, but I can talk about it tomorrow. (laughs) So by the time this uh, pod gets cast gets released, I think we're safe. Yeah. Um, We're, we're releasing it. uh, I believe tomorrow. And it is a fundraising video for the Actors Fund, uh, which is a major uh, charitable charitable organization that benefits not just actors, but musicians, dancers, uh, singers, uh, uh, crew, uh, designers, stage managers, everybody on and off stage and screen um, in times of financial need. Um, and as you can imagine right now, while we're all in isolation and uh, just this week at the time we're recording this, uh, Broadway theaters announced that they're extending their shutdown to September. Uh, the Hollywood Bowl just officially canceled its summer season. This didn't come as a surprise to any of us. We knew the writing was on the wall for that, but th- this had just all been formally announced this week. A lot of People who depend on the performing arts for their uh, livelihood are currently out of work um, and are, are in need of some assistance. And the Actors Fund is uh, probably the, one of the biggest organizations in the country, in the world, uh, who's devoted to, to helping uh, people in the performing arts in these kind of times. Um, so uh, I'm working on a piece, uh, uh, co-directing a video, actually, uh, for the first time uh, with the choreographer and director, Janet Rostin. Janet and I are, are co-directing this. Um, it's something we conceived of uh, pretty quickly after uh, we all got into to shutdown in, in March. And uh, it's a video that now involves over 150 uh, singer actors, dancers, and musicians 
uh, and we've compiled a, a you know a virtual performance of uh, the song "You Can't Stop the Beat" uh, from the musical Hairspray yeah. uh, by Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman. And Mark, in particular, has been uh, directly involved uh, with the creation of this. Um, we've got a bunch of great people who are featured in this video, uh, uh, soloists, uh, including uh, featured performers such as uh, uh, Martin Short, uh, Harvey Firestein, who was in the original uh, production of Hairspray, a lot of people who were in the original productions of uh, various productions of Hairspray, and also a lot of people who aren't necessarily involved with Hairspray the musical. This is more of a larger scale uh, musical theater community event, or at least that's, that, was, that was the goal. Um, you know, a lot of other people have, have, have jumped in and participated. Randy Rainbow is in it. Uh, and, uh, a whole, a whole bunch of great people, uh, on every, in every department. Um, and it's, uh, I, I just watched the final edit of it, uh, earlier today. Um, it's really a thrilling expression of joy, um, which was the goal that it be, that it be an expression of the joy of performing together, the joy of, of, of singing and dancing and playing music together. Um, and I'm so pleased to have uh, put this together uh, and to be able to bring it in the world. And we hope that it's able to raise some, uh, some good dollars for the Actors Fund uh, so they can keep helping people out. You obviously had to do a lot of socially distant collaboration during this. So how did you do that? Uh, by hook or by crook. Uh, it was a real challenge frankly, um, uh, especially with so many people involved. Some of the things we discovered is that each individual person has their own challenges and strengths uh, when it comes to their expertise in filming and recording themselves. Um, and so with, with so many people uh, working on this truly alone, um, a lot of people had help of, of family. Uh, but a lot of people were, were truly alone. Um, we did a lot of, of working with them to figure out how to set up what they needed to set up. Uh, we sent some, some very detailed instructions to each performer via email, and we discovered very quickly where we had said too much and where we had not said enough. <laughs> um, uh, I'm not going to throw anybody into the bus, but one or two people recorded their, their, their part and sent it to us, and we realized that they were in the wrong key because we didn't fully describe what section of the song that they were going to sing. Yeah. So we had to go back and, and, and have them re-record. There was a, we learned a lot uh, in terms of how to communicate with different performing artists on, on what we needed from them and coming back. Uh, and also for me, because I don't have experience editing uh, film. Uh, I mean, fortunately we have a, a great uh, video editor. His name, her name is uh, Ali Rice. Uh, and she did a, a, just a, uh, an astounding job of editing all this footage together. Um, uh, we One of the other things we learned the hard way is that it's intensely important uh, to have everybody slate at the beginning of their recording on a specific beat uh, so that we could sync up both the visual and audio track with a specific beat in, uh, in the overall piece. Uh, we didn't do that. Uh, so that became a huge challenge was, was, was syncing everything up. Uh, we were able to do it, but boy, did I learn the next time that that's going to be an important thing. It, it led me to really 
believe that that we need to find ways to whether or not we're in an imposed time of isolation the world is moving to a society in which we're more isolated mm. uh, it already is and in terms of our ability to communicate and collaborate together as artists um, this goes back to the very first things we talked about in terms of what why I'm a musician and an artist uh, in the first place. In terms of our ability to collaborate as artists, I'm finding we need to find a way to streamline this process, to make it more user-friendly, to make it um, uh, uh, more streamlined, to have there be as quick a communication as possible uh, between artists. We're never going to be able to have zero latency, but there's got to be ways that we can minimize that so that we can work together remotely. And I know people in the in the world of recording uh, have already been dealing with this quite a bit to some extent. You know, there are recording sessions that happen remotely, um, and there are there are ways of of fine tuning that. I'm feeling like there needs there need to be some ways to democratize that further. Um, one thing that became really clear among the people that we were collaborating with is that there was a real distinction between, um, shall we say, haves and have-nots in terms of the equipment that people own uh, and their expertise in using that equipment um, that, 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 w that was a limitation in our ability to collaborate with people. And I personally like to try to find ways to, to minimize that limitation. And I don't know what that looks like, um, but I think it's about collaborating both with performing artists and people uh, more on the technical side. Yeah, that seems to be the case. I I've heard of several other projects that are similar to this on, on a large scale. And that's always been the case where you have people that are technically proficient on, on one side, and then you have the others that are not. And even they may have gear and they don't know how to use it. So, you know, you, you walk that fine line there and, and especially... It's so easy when you're talking to somebody directly or you're in the room with them and you're, you're telling them what to do or you're asking them, you know, you're giving them direction. And then when you have to do it remotely, it's, it puts another barrier in between. So you're right, but you learn how to get around that and, and you're learning already. We did. We learned a lot how to get around it. Um, if I were to be crazy enough to try to do this again, uh, I'd know a lot of different ways I'd do it differently. Last question, David. Being an indie musician for a long time, an indie MD actor, so you you are obviously successful and and you know you're doing well and your career is growing, and that means you have a certain amount of business sense that's enabled you to to keep on doing that. So, what is the best piece of business advice that you either learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? It's twofold. And these two are going to seem like opposites. The first side of the coin is always be honest about what you need in exchange for the energy you're putting into a project. Always be honest about what you need, what you require, and how that is unique and individual. For me, it's unique and individual in that uh, a big part of the equation for me always uh, is that I'm the primary support of a family of four. Um, and so that makes my economic situation different from a lot of people who might be in competition for me for the same gig. Um, and that might negatively affect my ability to 
do that gig if they can't if the producer can't afford what i need um and that's okay the other side of that is while asking for what you need to always keep in mind kindness and compassion and a collaborative spirit when figuring out how to make that negotiation work mm. um that if you come to the table with a sense of this is what i need and if you can't give it to me then f you that's going to go really badly if you come to the table with a sense of this is what i need and i'm open to talking about how you may or may not be able to meet that need and i'm open to talking about how we may or be may or may not be able to collaborate in light of that uh those conversations have led me to a lot more successful both business and personal relationships you can find out more about david o at davidomusic.net that's davidomusic all one word .net thanks for listening and being in my inner circle Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.